This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled Liberty's Dawn, book one of the Liberty Trilogy. The author of Liberty's Dawn, Art Theocles, joins me from, I believe, it's North Carolina. Welcome, Art, to the program. Thank you for having me. Tell me of your book. This is the first in a trilogy. This book has been out a little while. Uh, it deals with present day and past history. Share how those two aspects of your novel merge in your storyline. Well, you know, the, the book is a great adventure story, and, and I wanted to I wanted to bring people a little bit about history. And as I sat and watched current events and, and watched things, you know, happen through the financial crisis, through what's happening socially and politically in our country. Um, I noticed that, you know, what haven't we learned from history? History tells us, you know, where we've gone wrong over and over, and and I had to do something with it. And as we, as I sat and, and wanted to understand, um, you know, how I could sort of bring history to the people today from the past and, and show the lessons, um, I noticed many instances of, of, of things that have been repeating. And so you go... I said, I need a starting point. Where should I start? Mm -hmm. uh, being here in America, America's Revolutionary War was a great beginning. The the story took a took a took a, a shape, and then from from there it became a, a three book story, a trilogy, and and that brought us that gave me many instances of America's domestic conflicts, Revolutionary War, um, War of eighteen twelve, and Civil War. Now, Liberty's gone is specifically Revolutionary War, and um, in the book. Two, you know, three three men from 2010 on a on a weekend out in South Carolina end up back in back in time in 1780 witnessing the fall of Charleston the British, and they have to deal with the history of the day with the knowledge they know of of, of the future. So they can wrap it they wrap it all together, and and the narrator gives you the history, and then explains why things were in the past, why we did, why we were founded, how we were, um, and then relays it to modern-day problems. That if somebody just opens their eyes and goes, oh, look, huh, that's happening today, too, or we've heard that today. Mm -hmm. Now, were your three characters, were they physically transported back into the past, or was this a vision that they encountered? They were actually physically transported back. It was a camping weekend. Um, armed with modern weapons and the morals not to use them once they have to. Uh, they they very much liberty's gone very much as a oh man what happened that that's the, basically the feel of the book. Um, and so they they go back they decide you know they're literally sitting outside of Charleston South Carolina in a bog and they peel back the bushes and they're witnessing the siege of Charleston. Incredible. Uh, th 394 pages. As you begin to write this, did you think that this novel, this idea, this concept, 
I'm guessing was specifically targeted for a USA audience, but will it also impact people around the world? It does have an international reach. Um, so, you know, it, it encompasses a number of things, certainly a U.S. theme. Um, Americans, uh, patriots, anybody who, who loves U.S. history will, will, will look at it and go, wow, what an interesting way he's wrapped a fictional story around the real history of the United States. Beautiful. Um, but the international theme is later in the book you get you get um, notions of of faith of of, of of Christianity from 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 a, from a long past. Um, uh, the, the main character has an issue. He is a, he is a child of the Cold War, so he has a particular. I don't want to give too many things away. He has a particular edge about what's happening, and and he relates that. And toward the end of the book, you find out who the protagonists are. Uh, sorry, antagonists, and you find out who the antagonists are, and he relates back his problem with the politics and the ideology that is infecting the past. When you began to write this, did you sit down and, and do an outline? How did you begin the process of uh, putting this trilogy together? You know, that's a, that's a great question, and, and my, my dad asked me the same question. And really, what it was was, I simply sat and I started I started thinking of of a story of of the conflict revolutionary war in the south and of the of the 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 ideology that's now being sort of pushed in our country since 1905 the the history goes back and it goes back in layers there's really a lot there um and so there was no outline per se i was moving through i was moving through the story and as uh the narrator or as the main character was was giving you the history of the founding and of the revolution all the way to Yorktown, um, I was picking out specific events that then directly related to things that we're seeing today in our news. Uh, would you describe your process as uh, sort of like a movie camera hovering above the action and giving a, a step-by-step account of what's happening below? Yes, absolutely. It, it moves that way, and then and then you'll you'll drop into the characters to to have conversation, and then you you come right back out to the to the thirty foot level to then continue to witness the um the, the action. Are you a student of history? Obviously, you must be. But is there something else in your I guess your work background besides being an author that prepared you to be an author and share with us Liberty's Dawn? Well, I um I'm, I'm an aeronautical engineer by education. And I'm a computer geek by career. Um, history is something I've always enjoyed, and particularly the, the you know the technology. Obviously, coming from a, from an engineering background, the technology has sort of the technology aspect of of our wars, of our conflicts. But the history piece, uh, being born in Massachusetts, I was steeped in it from the beginning. When I was you know I was born in a, a small town, um, sixteen. 20 or 1675. It was just a very old place. And so there's history everywhere. Um, well, I thought for, thought for a minute there you said you were born in 1665. I didn't think that was possible. <laughs> no. We aren't going in that direction with this uh, this novel. No, no. As uh, you have three characters, do they stay in the past very long? Is that the uh, primary source of your storytelling or is it in and out of those uh, those time frames? Uh, once they once they you know mysteriously end up Outside of Charleston, they stay there for the rest of the book, and um, the series progresses you through. And I don't, we don't talk about the series, but the the series progresses you through other conflicts. Um, but in Liberty's Dawn, you remain 
in the years 1780 and 1781 with the main characters. And and at the end of the book, you have a you have a a, a final sigh, which will lead you into the next the next novel. Tie it right together. Uh, fortunately, they don't get sick with some of the illnesses of that period. I hope, uh, or shot while they're standing uh, gazing at the battlefield. Uh, there must be in your mind some key elements that you wanted to convey to the reader. What were those? Um. So, so the key elements really, again, the people people of our time in 2010. Uh, just a note on just a note on the, uh, the the disease and the the, um, the the battlefield getting shot. Yes. They were they pretty much stayed out of the way. They they did, they never wanted to enter um, the, the 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 foray in what they were watching and seeing. Um, they did go back. Obviously, they were camping. They had medicines. They had this and that. They brought a lot. They brought a lot with them on that. Um, so they, they did sort of cheat history a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and people smile at me when they talk to me about that. I said, well, you know, it is fiction, <laughs> um, <laughs> and, I can, and I, can do, I can do quite a bit with it. But um, I, the main pieces really is I'm wrapping, in Liberty's Dawn, I'm wrapping the idea of, of, of ideology of our founding, ideology of what's happening today in our world, in our, specifically in our country in 1905. We borrowed... We borrowed some things from, from, from the monarchies of Europe, and it has crept into our country since, since about 1870, 1880. Um, without going into too much detail, you know, that's a piece I want people to sort of wake up and understand. How are we moving away from the, the, from the, founding, from the founding principles of this country? Um, there's a little faith throw in there. I want people to, you know, feel, oh, all right, so these guys, these guys aren't really alone. They're... they're in some form or fashion, they're getting a little bit of assistance. I want, I want people to feel that. And, and, and a lot of people have gone, you know, after I read it the second or third time, I saw it, and that was really interesting. It's good story, um, good storytelling if you're able to do that. Yep. And actually, genuine history. Um, I've been fact-checked by the right and the left, begrudgingly by the left, happily by the right. Uh, <laughs> and I do, I, do, I do claim to be an independent right down the middle, um, but I probably do lean a little bit right. Uh, well, Art, how, how long did it take you to write this book? I mean, you have uh, 394 pages. Some of my authors will take 10 or 12 years to get their first novel out when it's this long. Liberty's Dawn took me a year, let me see, um, about a year and a half to write. The first six months were, what am I doing with this? Am I writing something? Is it? I'm, I'm jotting this stuff down. All of a sudden I had, you know, 80 pages. I'm going... All right, something's coming out of this, and then I really started into it. Fabulous. So about a year and a half. Fabulous. Do you have other storylines that are already sitting on the shelf, just waiting for the time and space to create their legacy? There are other other ideas, but this one here, this one take me a little bit. Um, you know, um, book two is out. Uh, it's defending liberty, but every um, song uh, is the first of the trilogy. They're actually a companion book that's spun out of book two. So the series will be six books. Wow. So the trilogy, and the trilogy is the core of, of, of the five or six series, five book series. And your recommendation would be to read in sequence, I'm assuming. Oh, absolutely. Otherwise, they'll get lost in the action. The details of time and space. Yes, I have difficulties <laughs> with time and space myself once in a while. <laughs> if you were to introduce this to someone on the street corner, how would you get them interested in Liberty's Dawn? Basically, I would tell them this. 
three guys from 2010 on a camping weekend in the hills of South Carolina find themselves transported back to witness the fall of Charles from the British in 1780. Armed with modern weapons and the morals not to use them, they must use their knowledge and their strengths to maintain liberty and freedom moving forward. Is there a scene in here that is maybe a little adjunct to history that you have created that is going to grab the reader's attention? There are actually, there are actually several. Um, when, when people are reading the book, and, and I've got this for feedback, the very first conflict is you, you, you witness the Battle of Kings Mountain. Um, and, and the main character, you know, it's, it's kind of like you can, you can almost see it in your mind. They're walking up on the, onto the area of the battlefield before the battle. They inspect it. They stand back. The main character explains how the battle's going to kind of go and how we win that battle. That was a, a, one of the key victories that the colonies had. And then they, then they hunker down, and they're waiting. And, and, and not everything goes exactly as planned, and they've got to react. That, that, was the first, that was the first key point where people just sort of went off the rails and said, holy moly. <laughs> what's, what's going on here? So, Art, you've also included some, what I would call them, uh, Facebook insider, uh, geeky nerd kind of uh, abbreviations like SSDD. What is an SSDD? Um, same stuff, different day. <laughs> I, I did change that a little bit. There's another S word there that I didn't oh. use. So, so uh, a lot of people have told me that, that they've never seen texting in a book. Yeah, right. This is the first time they ever saw a text, a text passage you know, and of course, everybody recognizes it. That's you know, sort of hip. I'm not quite all there, but I'm a computer geek, so I have to be. You're partially. <laughs> you got to be partially hip. This is 235 uh, years in the past, and you you've uh, contemporized it by throwing in some uh, some nerdy uh, <laughs> translatable yep. uh, short acronyms. Uh, the book itself. Were there challenges in getting it completed? You know, the challenges. I didn't find that that challenges were, were exactly that. Um, editing was interesting, because I'm an engineer, so I write in a technical fashion, so the editing was obviously, wow, that's different. It looks like a book now. You know, the, the first run was, was, was radically, you know, radically different than what, what, what I had written. Nothing changed. It's just, you know, putting everything in its place and, and making it look like a book. And, and I guess this really isn't a challenge, but I'm just surprised at how many people pick out one thing in, in Liberty's Dawn and say, you know, this really got me, and it seems to be different. Everybody, it's, it's, it's sort of averaged across the whole book. Everybody's picked out a certain thing, and it's always pre-level. Um, I wanted to make sure that, that uh, the people felt as if their friends, by the time King's Mountain occurs, their friends were in trouble. And a lot of people had that. Oh, my God, my guys, my friends, were they were, they were in trouble. Wow. You know, and that was... The relatability that did that did make the beginning a little slow. Um, <laughs> some people said, you know, it took a little time to. I know, but I'm building the I'm building a foundation. The entire series. Art building a foundation of your characters is a key ingredient in a successful writing career. Art, where do we get copies of your book? So it's been it's been on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Uh, it's on Kindle as well as hardcover, softcover, um, iBooks. It's pretty much being sold around the world now. I've, I've sold copies of Liberty's Dawn in, in, in Denmark, in England. The U.K. is obviously a choice. Somebody might pick up and go, oh, American Revolution. Um, 
I've, I've seen I've seen a, a, a copy sold in Japan. So Turkey, Turkey's another one. That's that's an interesting one. I'm Incredible. Great. <laughs> that's exciting. Your career as an author is uh, beginning to take off, and I hope that perhaps this story may be put into movie form. It uh, certainly has the elements that should get a producer's attention. Art, what kind of feedback are you getting from people who have read your book? It's all been pretty good. Uh, people really look at the characters, and, and, and they, they find them very relatable. They feel, they tell me that it feels like their best friends or their friends or their neighbors, they know, they've known for a while, are in this problem, and they're concerned for them. They, 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 they just... They have they have that genuine concern once they reach a certain point in the book, just probably King's Mountain, um, where they have this 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 general concern. Also, they tell me that the story is 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 a fresh kind of approach. It's a it's a it's a it's different um, to the movie thing. If if it came out as a movie, it would be a really new feel to a film. Uh, we've seen a lot of remakes and remakes and remakes and remakes, and and, and this would be a a nice, a nice change. I, I think it sounds exceptional. It's in my uh, in my list of books that are a must read. I'm going to share it with my other friends as well. As far as the concept for a movie, has anyone approached you about that yet? I actually did a pitch fest in Hollywood, um, July of 2012, and everybody tells me, you know, they move really slow. Um, but of the of the nine of the nine studios that that I pitched to. Three of them requested the manuscript from my universe. Wow! And and as a note, any person that I go, any person that I sell this book to, and I, I've heard this I, hundreds of times, they'll find me back at the next event, um, and they'll say, "Whoa, this would be a great movie." <laughs> and 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 I, I just smile because it would be because I'm one of these guys, you know, um, that that grew up with you know Top Gun and and Red Dawn and all this kind of stuff, and as I wrote the book, I could just feel the film. I could just feel the scene. Mm. And, and most people, most people uh, say you describe stuff perfectly, not too much, and not 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 you know slightly. It's just right, and you just get a sense. You can almost feel the concussion of the cannons, or you can smell the gunpowder. And I'm just like, that's just you know, that's that's just great for me to hear. What a commendation! What a commendation! <laughs> yes. Well, Art Theocles has been my author guest this morning, his book, Liberty's Dawn, book one of the Liberty Trilogy. Art, thank you for visiting with me today. I look forward to talking with you in the future about the next in the series as it's released. Contact me with VIP tickets when that premiere takes place. Great, thanks so much, Jay. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix.
Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled, Thriving Through It, How Do They Do It? What It Takes to Transform Trauma into Triumph. And our author, who knows this subject very well, is Joyce Ann Tepley, who joins me from the Dallas, Texas area. Thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you, Jay, very much. I have looked through your book. I find it inspirational in content, but there's more to it than that. Tell me the outline of your book and why you chose to write it. Well, it was based on uh, simple curiosity. I was wondering one day while I was going through some difficult times in my life, what it is that some people seem to thrive during those difficulties and others um, don't. Now, I didn't set out to compare those who do and don't, but I was curious to know if people who thrive had something in common with each other. Uh, There was some uh, people that I knew who had long-term physical disabilities like myself. I had polio when I was nine. I'm now 71 years old, so I've had a long life of dealing with the ups and downs of a body that doesn't work all the time like I'd like it to. So I decided one time, to uh, about 14 years ago, to interview some of the people who were referred to me as thrivers, and I picked out about 20 people from all walks of life. These are people who have on disability, social security income. Some of them had PhDs and in counseling. Some were um, very much uh, uh, debilitated from their childhood diseases, and some had injuries from, you know, when they were adults. So out of those 20 people that I interviewed, I found out that, sure enough, they did have some things in common. There were personality traits, particular personality traits. There were beliefs that they had about uh, their lives and what, like um, uh, feeling blessed in many ways, uh, relying on a higher power for their well-being. Uh, some were religious, some were not. And then there were supports that they had. They were masters at being able to surround themselves with the right kind of support to make it through life. So basically that's it. That was my research. I'm a social worker by profession. So I took that kind of viewpoint about, you know, what it takes to deal with life circumstances. What was the impact of family environment to most of the individuals you interviewed? Well, that that's a good question because one of the things that uh, I found that there each each of the twenty people that I interviewed, and also they had many different uh, ages, kind of like the average age was about uh, fifty. <clears throat> They all said that they were self-determined. That was their number one personality trait, That almost to the point of being stubborn. I was going to ask that. That that, uh, nobody could tell them what to do. I mean, they took other people's viewpoints into consideration, but they also took charge of their own lives. There was no blame, no shame. They didn't look for uh, somebody else to, or, you know, some other circumstances to, to blame for their problems. But, on the other hand, they also gave a lot of credit to the support they had from their families. 
most of the thrivers had parents who advocated for them. When And this was back in the 50s and um, 40s when there wasn't much accessibility in our um, United States like there is now. You know, we didn't have curb cuts back then, mm-hmm. didn't have ramps, we didn't have uh, uh, more access to to uh, not just buildings, but opportunities like people with long-term disabilities have now. And, of course, with our aging population, um, you know, we can really take advantage of that now. And so, yes, there there was somebody in each thriver's life, even the ones who, there was one thriver named Myrna who had a very difficult uh, family upbringing. Uh, Her father was quite critical of her, so... She was kind of the exception that proved the rule. Hmm. Even though she did not have supportive parents in many ways, she was determined to prove them wrong. She made it through life on her own, pretty much. But she had a fourth-grade teacher who encouraged her writing ability. And out of that, she felt that she you know, had what it took to make it. So every person had somebody that supported their talents. One thing that's unique about your book, not unique, I guess, but uh, perhaps uh, astounding to to realize, many of the people that you interviewed or talk about had spinal cord injuries. Uh, So it was something that impacted their life adversely, perhaps after they were an adult or uh, late in life. That is a a difficult thing to overcome, I believe, and, and remarkable that these individuals not only survived, but they did thrive. Oh, yes. And you know the actor Christopher Reeves? Yes. Remember him? Well, he was a superhero in the movies, but after his spinal cord injury, he became a superhero in his own life and probably impacted more people because of that and did more good in the world in the short years that he had left. So that's another thing about being a thriver is that there's a transformational aspect to it. It's not just overcoming your adversities, but it is transforming and becoming a better person. It's kind of like, you know, the whole the metaphor of compost. Yes. We don't want to look at that part of our lives, but we're always dying in some way. But in that death process, there is a transformation in that what is compost? Compost is the rich soil of which new life grows from. So I like to think of my life filled with the lovely smell of compost. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a great way to look at it. You you Mm -hmm. must observe and you must uh, take a philosophical approach when life hands you a lemon. And, of course, the the theme, you know, make a lemon into lemonade, that's that's maybe overused, especially in the circumstances you've described in your book. You have some of your uh, individuals that you have interviewed that were born without... Uh, arms or legs, and still yeah. have oh, thrived. Yeah. Oh. yeah, she was remarkable, the, the woman you're talking about. Uh, and one of the funny stories she tells, though, is that she she is uh, was director of an organization for quite a while, and uh, it was a center for independent living in California. And uh, in meetings that she'd have with her staff, people would hand around pieces of paper and hand one to her, and of course she, mm-hmm. she didn't have any hands or fingers to grasp it, wow. but they would forget that she was, you know, disabled in that way. 
And so she took that as a compliment. I would absolutely consider that a compliment. There are some attributes that you've discovered. What are those specifically, besides what you've already discussed, that produces thrivers? One of the things that I said that was the thrivers are self-determined but not self-made. And the thing about that is that, like with Christopher Reeves, he had the determination to keep going after, I don't know if you've ever read his biography. I have not. Bill Me. Hmm. Uh, his wife, he was about ready to give up in life. Uh, he wanted to die. And one day when he was in the throes of, the, of still being um, acutely disabled from the injury, he was crying to her and he said, just, just unplug me, just let me die. Hmm. And she said, Chris, you're still you. No matter what you're having to go through now, I'm there with you. And all of his friends, everybody rallied around it. So you cannot do it alone. It's like um, the metaphor that I use for thriving is the pearl that's on the front of my book. And the thing that I like, though, is that when you, you know, the grid of your life creates the pearl. But in that, if you string the pearls together, they enhance the beauty of each other. So thriving, you cannot do it alone. Um, Drivers are masters, as I said before, of creating the support around them. You've heard the phrase, when in danger and in doubt, run in circles, scream and shout. (laughs) Well, I love the the phrase, when in danger and in doubt, find yourself another route. Ah, beautifully said. (laughs) Problem solving. Oh, key attribute of thrivers, they are masters at problem solving. There's always a way. The belief is there's always another way to deal with problems. Uh, And even in the throes of when I've been the sickest, somebody comes along, or some thousands of people probably come along, and find me and help me find another way. It's incredible how that does happen in individuals' lives. I've got a neighbor, a friend, uh, I have known her since she's been uh, probably a, a three- or four-year-old child. She's a young adult now, 35 or so, with children. For whatever reason, she has been discovered she has Lou Gehrig's, and the throes of that are beginning to attack her life. But her posts on Facebook and other venues where there's social media are absolutely inspiring. She has wow. not taken it as a negative. She's taken it as a positive I want to do a book about her life and about her story because it's that brilliant. And she oh, has found right. a way to adapt, and emotionally she's conquered it. Wow. Well, I encourage you to do a book for her. That would be really great because that, that's my joy, to just simply honor those people out there who give us their stories, who, who give generously of their lives, you know, posting here or there everywhere. I mean, it, it's so wonderful to be to live in a time now when when the common person can be that known and give us those kind of inspirations. The rest of my life is what I'm going to dedicate myself to, is just honoring those who thrive. Beautiful. I love the, the concept of your book and the stories that you've shared. Was there one individual in the story, the retelling, that has uh, a story that will stand out to the reader? In, in of the thrivers of the thrivers that yes. I interviewed yes probably Peg uh, she's on the back cover of my book and Peg 
uh, was born with something called neuromuscular atrophy. It's not caused by any virus or bacteria or anything like that. It's just a wasting away of the muscles and the nerves mm -hmm. to the muscles. It's a little like muscular dystrophy and, and multiple sclerosis, <clears throat> and it has no known uh, uh, cure or uh, reason behind it. And anyway, she's now in her, what would I say, uh, 60s, early 60s, and she can't hold her head up on her own. She has to be turned every two hours in bed. She has like four or five attendants round the clock. She had a PhD in, in uh, I forget what now. <laughs> I have to read my own book to remember some of what I wrote here. But uh, she is in Houston, Texas, and she runs an organization. Uh, she is just, to me, the epitome of what a thriver is. She's got like a little garden of Eden, her home, her garden, uh, people that she's adopted that, that take care of her, uh, children that she can't have, but children of her attendants are her own uh, adopted children. It's just, she's just built a marvelous life for herself. There are some and, amazing people uh, out there. Yeah. But recently, she's had a string of bad luck in, in that uh, one of, she, she jammed her hand into a table at a conference mm. uh, driving her uh, electric wheelchair and broke three three um, uh, bones in her hand. Then she got a lung infection and was in the hospital for 12 days. I mean, it was just one thing after another. But she's rallied back from that. And I would call her not only resilient, but the epitome of a thriver. Beautiful story. The way you have written the book and tell the stories, it's in a page and a half or so. You don't get bogged down in the weeds. You tell their story, tell their accomplishments, and celebrate their life, these thrivers. Were there complications or difficulties in getting the book to press? Well, the actual writing of it was a joy to me. Of course, I had to discipline myself. I watched the um, series Upstairs, Downstairs on DVD as a reward <laughs> for every hour that I put in writing, then I would watch another episode. So I got through the big series of Upstairs, Downstairs, and was able to finish the book. What was the hardest part was the editing. Uh, I wrote and wrote and wrote, and so I had a lot of material. But then to try to edit it, I probably had maybe 10, 15 rounds of editing. Mm. I was so tired of editing that book to get it to where it is today. But on the other hand, it's a nice, concise, uh, balanced work, and I'm proud of that. iUniverse, the publisher, was so helpful to me. Their editorial department, I mean, they were encouraging, and they were right there. You know, it took me three years to get the thing edited, <clears throat> where um, we were all satisfied with it. So I, I, if anybody wants to write a book, let me tell you, it is not easy. Not easy. But there are easy ways to do it. Uh, Joyce, Except, as you completed this, I'm not as you completed Joyce, where can my listeners get copies of your book? Well, they can uh, go to iUniverse, the publisher, or they can go to Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com. It's in hardback, paperback, and ebook versions.
the authorship process has not been one that uh, is new to you. Have you decided you may do a follow-up book? Oh, yes. I'm, I'm greatly encouraged to, to do more interviews. I'm also going to be doing some podcasting once I get my voice really back. And uh, I will be posting more stories on my website, which is www.thriverlivingcommunity.com. That's thriverlivingcommunity.com. And you can go to there, and there's a little opt-in box, and it says, Are you a Thriver? And I will send you a test and a free gift. And if you fill in the test, you will decide whether or not you are a Thriver. Great. That's great. Well, I am, I'm excited to have had the opportunity to visit with you and share in your life and in your story. Thank you for sharing Thriving Through It, How Do They Do It, What It Takes to Transform Trauma into Triumph. My guest, author Joyce Ann Tepley. Thank you, Joyce, for joining me today. Oh, Jay, you've been a great interviewer. Thank you. Well, you're easy to talk to. Thank you for sharing your story. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The title of the book is The Tears of War. And our author, who has written this memoir, is Ingeborg E. Riles, who joins me from Florida. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me. Pleasure to visit with you. Your book, the book cover, is uh, is intriguing. Is that your photo on the cover? Yes, it is. It is. When I was a teenager, yes. Uh, they chose to put the picture on the cover. <laughs> I, th- I think it's very, uh, very fascinating the way they have uh, structured this. Uh, this obviously has to do with World War II and your memoir. Why did you choose to write your book, and what is the inspiration behind it? Well, at first... Uh, uh, I wanted to forget the terrible memories of that period, if this period of time in my life. But as the children began, to, my children, as they went to school and they began to study, study World War II in school, they began to ask questions. And uh, uh, knowing that as a teenager, German teenager, I had lived through World War II. So over a period of time, I would speak at elementary and high schools. Um, wrote down various uh, notes which over the per- a period of time led 
mature enough material for the book. You actually uh, were a child or grew, grew up in Germany then? Yes, I did. I, yes, I grew up in Germany in a small Pomeranian village. And uh, like I said, uh, after uh, World War II, you know, I came to this country and uh, then I eventually wrote the book. Were you in, interred, in, interned in a, uh, a camp, uh, a prisoner of war camp during that time, or were you no, able to... when I was, uh, during the war, I was a child. I was just a young girl. At, uh, at the end of the war, I was shipped at, as a teenager to the eastern part of the country to dig trenches for the German military. And uh, it was a very hard uh, job to dig these trenches, and they found out I was only 15, so they, I, had to, I had kitchen duty from then on, but I was there for several months to dig trenches for the German army. And that was not a voluntary position, was no, it? Oh, no, no, no. You no. just had to do what they told you to do. And your, your, <laughs> yes. ration, your rationing didn't consist of uh, great, great amounts of food, either, you, you tell in your book. Well, while we were at the, uh, on the eastern part of the country near the Polish border, as the Russian army was coming closer and closer, we had plenty of food there, but they were mostly bandish meals, you know. And uh, it was nothing fancy, but we, we, we had enough food there. The uh, starvation almost happened after the Russians uh, came to our country, you know, if, um, and... Uh, there was no food available. We had to be subsisted on boiled potatoes and milk for a long time. Incredible. How long was this period of your life? Uh, with the Russian uh, yes. occupation? Yes, with the Russian occupation. From uh, I was 14 by that time, the time they got there. They, they conquered our part of the uh, Germany. And uh, 18... Uh, I escaped at 18. I escaped from a labor camp, so mm. I, 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 a period of four years. Four years and uh, and, and upon, a, yes, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I was go just gonna, I was asking about the the escape itself. Now, once you escaped, and uh, first of all, how did you escape? And once you escaped, where did you go? I could not go home again. I uh, had to take a train immediately to Berlin because I, in the Russian labor camp, I was appointed to a um, uh, head of a uh, brigade. I was called a brigadier, and I had to report to a Russian officer. He was my superior, and he began to drink, and uh, he wanted uh, a lot of pay with me, and I did not was not interested. And he started to hit me, beat mm. me. One afternoon, it was Saturday afternoon, about 5, 6 o'clock, my brigade and I were standing outside the building, and he came up and asked me to come to his quarters to pick up my work orders for the next week. It was a Saturday afternoon, and I said in Russian, I said, Niet, no, mm. because I knew what he had in mind. He was intoxicated. He hauled out and slammed his fist into my face, I sending me sprawling to the ground, and... Uh, my brigade surrounded me immediately to usher me away. He ran into the building, and from the first floor building, he stood at the door. We had to jump 
onto a concrete on the floor. I thought we were going to break every bone in our bodies, but we made mm. it all right. Another brigadier told me, she said, you can don't go to, go to your barracks tonight. Spend the night at my barracks. And so we did. And uh, anyway, this is when I decided I could not stay there any longer. We got the worst work assignments. And uh, when he started to beat me, that's when I decided to escape. And what was the method of escape? How did you get uh, free from uh, that situation? Well, I, uh, like I said, we had, uh, it was kind of tearful because I had 50 women under my command. And the last night I was there, we built a little bonfire and we reminisced about the Gambangan fire, uh, about the uh, uh, bonfire, and we said our goodbyes. The next morning, they all went to work. I appointed somebody to be brigadier because they had to get their ration cards for the next day. Hmm. And uh, then I, you know, we said our goodbyes, and the next morning, after they had gone to work, I kept on waiting at the, uh, until I was sure that uh, Sasha, the officer, had to report to that he wasn't there in the camp. And uh, so I waited till about nine o'clock or so before I walked out of the barracks. And I was starting to walk toward, there was a train coming at uh, about nine o'clock in the morning that went around the island. And uh, that was the only way I could go to the ferry. And all of a sudden I was started walking out of the barracks and somebody called my name, a Russian a sergeant. I almost froze. <laughs> it was a supply sergeant for I, with whom I had daily contact. I had to get the sh- shovels and the rakes and, and, and uh, everything for my girls mm. for the work, you know, on, and to get from him, check them out. And so I called him by his first name and I said, come on. I said, you have to write me a permission. I had, to, they took our passes from us. I, you had to have a pass. The ferry was heavy guarded that I had to go to the mainland to escape and I had to have some kind of paper and they were taken, our passes were taken from us when we got to the island. So I dragged them to his office. He already had been drinking that morning and I told him, I said, you sit down and write this out. So he kept on saying, niat, niat, which is no, mm-hmm. no in Russian. And I said, yes, you do. And so I gave him a pen and he started scribbling something on a piece of paper. This was a handwritten note. Of course, the Russian language is quite different from the, you know, the Latin or the German language. So when I got to the ferry, I finally made the train. I grabbed the piece of paper. I heard the whistle of the train out of his hands, rushed to the uh, train and just made it in time. And when we got to, I got to the ferry, I was so scared. There were two Russian soldiers, heavily armed, standing on the ferry that was to take me to the mainland. So I waited about several hours before I had enough nerve to get on the ferry. Well, I handed the first Russian soldier this little piece of slip of paper with the Russian language on there. He turned it upside down. He turned it this way, that way. Then I realized he could not read. So he handed it to the other soldier and he did the same thing. Neither of them could read. So they just, they realized this was written in their language, so they motioned me to get on the ferry. Incredible. And Yes, and so that's how I got to the mainland, but I was still a long ways from home. I didn't know. I had to close on my bag. I had no food, and I didn't know how I was going to get home. But I finally, there were some Russian uh, uh, trucks 
on the ferry, and one of them went to the Berlin. I asked them where they were going, and they offered to take me on the back of the truck within, I think it was about two miles of my village. Incredible. But it was a long, long, it was, this was in the morning, and by the time I got to my village, it was midnight. So Incredible story. They stopped so many places along the way, you know. As, I'm sorry. As, as, a young, as a young adult in, living in Germany and being brought up, did you understand the scope of Hitler's control and what was to be known as the Holocaust? Well, we, we heard about it. and uh, But we were so, not, not isolated, but we only had radios. Of course, there were no TVs. We had definitely heard about uh, persecution of the Jews. And, in fact, in the next village, there was a Jewish, it was a larger village. There was a uh, clothing store. Uh, it was run by a uh, uh, Jewish, you know, uh, the owner was Jewish. And uh, one night, they bashed in his windows, and I felt so bad for them. They had two lovely teenage girls, and I don't know what ever happened to them. I mm. have no clue what they eventually disappeared, you know. Yes. An amazing time in human history. The Second World War is just Absolutely. one of the most uh, startling yes. and, and uh, yes. frightening times that I think the humankind has gone through. As you uh, began to write your story, uh, did you share with the readers how you got to the United States? Uh, yes, I did. I After I escaped, um, um, it's a long story, but how I got through the pass control heading into Berlin. I hit in a restroom on the train while the soldiers were checking everybody's passes. And uh, then I finally got over to the Western sector, the American sector of the city. I eventually um, met my husband in the Western part. He was responsible. He was a civilian to restore the postal and the um, telephone service in Germany. Everything was totally destroyed. And for the first time, he was able to, they had contact with South America and the other countries. And But he was the one that was responsible for, for restoring all these services. That's amazing in itself. Yes. As people are reading this, who do you think will enjoy or benefit from, from your book? Uh, I think uh, uh, there has been, uh, over the years, a lot of interest in World War II, and I think it's it's a book that uh, uh, will tell you about the atrocities that were committed by the Russian soldiers on a daily basis. I mean, we had to hide from the soldiers when they came to the village. Young boys would stand at the entrance of the village and uh, alert us. We immediately would go into hiding because all they wanted to do is is drink vodka. They would come in in the late afternoon, pick a house at random, get you know, intoxicated, and then go throughout the village mm. to look for women to rape. It was just mm. on almost a daily basis. Horrible, and horrible, horrible uh, scene that you've just described. As uh, you completed your book, were there some underlying messages that you want the reader to take away from the read? Well, I was hoping that we had learned a lesson that uh, how brutal and how bad it is war is and 
apparently it is still a present-day problem, you know, and I was just hoping that, uh, uh, like I said, at the end of the uh, book, uh, if I may just read this to you, this whole chapter, uh, not chapter, but this, uh, I said, at the end of the book, this book is dedicated to the innocent victims of World War II. It was a war that spent several continents and touched the lives of many. They endured hardships, starvation, and untold atrocities at the hands of others, often paying the ultimate price. To honor their memory, let us strive to make this a better world in which one is not judged by nationality, race, or religion, but by the kindness and compassion one shows towards his fellow men. Let us rise above the use of force and solve our difference in a more humane and civilized way so another war of such proportions will never again touch our lives. But apparently we have not learned a lesson. It, the world is that's very, so much is going on right now. Yes. And uh, so, uh, anyway. But that is your hope of, yes. of this memoir that you have, have yes. written. How would you introduce this to someone in a couple of sentences? Um, I, I think uh, it's the loss of innocence for, uh, you know, for our generation when, when we grew up. And we can learn from the past. Yes, and this is why I said uh, I was hoping we would learn from the past, and so uh, another war of such vast proportion will never again touch our lives, but uh, it's not so. You know, there's a lot of uh, things that are going on in this world right now, uh, and, and I was hoping we'd learn a lesson. Much from. conflict. You've included some photographs uh, of family members and uh, other key contributors to your story as you were yes. putting this into print uh, yes, my brother so and, your brother uh, of course my cousin he was uh, he got killed he was uh, an airman and uh, there's my cousin uh, Lorchen. Uh she was taken by the russians and and they found her and she was assaulted and uh, there are yeah there are a number of uh, uh pictures here and of course my mother and there's a labor camp uh, where i was you know, in, uh, on the island in the Baltic Sea, the barracks here. And uh, so there are a number of uh, pictures in there. Yes, and they just underscore the importance of the story you're telling. Were there challenges in going back into your history and reliving some of those moments and uh, putting it into print? Uh, sometimes, yes. I would, uh, when you start writing this and go into the details, yeah, and I had... Uh, there were some times I thought, well, I should I don't know whether I should have done this one, but uh, uh, yeah, I wanted to do this for my children and uh, to let them know what it was like uh, during the Second World War, what we experienced, and for them to be more appreciative uh, of the life they are living here in this wonderful country. And uh, like I said, we, we had no food. We, and one thing, uh, the Soviet soldiers brought diseases with them. First it was diphtheria, then it was typhoid. First I got diphtheria, I survived that. But there was no food and there was no uh, medicine to cure these things. Then I uh, was in this apartment building where a doctor, everything was closed down, the hospitals, everything. This doctor uh, in the apartment building that had um, um, 
been converted into a temporary hospital and this doctor was treating the patients. He had no medicine, nothing. And uh, I went there to, when I had diphtheria and uh, the typhoid patients were on the top floor. When I came home a week later, I got typhoid fever. Oh my. I almost died. I was so sick. I thought I was going to die. When my weight went down to 80 pounds, my hair was gone. I could not walk anymore and I was hallucinating. And um, I truly thought I was going to die. Ingeborg, you have shared with me a personal story of uh, tragedy and survival. Please share that specific incident with my audience today. Here we were all in there together and sleeping on the floors everywhere. They they occupied the rest of our homes, you know. And uh, after the Russians left, we still decided to stay in this particular home. We were afraid to go to our homes and live there individually because we thought we were safer in numbers. So um, one night, uh, soldiers came to our village to one of the empty homes where we had, we had vacated and they were starting to drink and about by, by the time it got dark they were shooting their weapons into the air, they were all mm. roaring drunk and so they suddenly they were banging on out the back door and it was a very heavy door but they took rifle butts and just bang, bashed in the door. So my cousin Lorchen, she was two years older than I. I had just turned 16 and never even dated. You know, we didn't date early. And Ilse, her, her friend, and I, we were put into a small room. It was a storage room in the large wardrobe. We didn't have walk-in closet. A wardrobe was pushed across the door. As the soldiers came in, there was an officer and soldiers. They were all intoxicated. And they were walking in and they were looking for girls to take to their drunken party there. Mm. And uh, so we thought we were safe. And all of a sudden, they went around on the outside, showing their flashlights. There was a small window in this room, and they saw us. And all of a sudden, they pushed the wardrobe across uh, the way, and there were the soldiers, obviously heavily armed with all their rifles and so forth. First, they dragged my cousin Lorcan out into the next room, and... Ilse and I, we jumped into a wardrobe in the corner. Well, they opened the door to the wardrobe and dragged Ilse out. And next they came for me, and I pressed my legs against the bottom of the wardrobe. I was going to come out. And uh, two of them tried to pull me by the arms. And when I wouldn't come out, mind you, they were intoxicated, and they had these big uh, these guns set for if you pull the trigger and 20... You know, shots come out mm-hmm. and uh, um, ammunition. And so anyway, so he put the gun into my stomach and he was ready to shoot. And I lifted up my arms uh, as a last result. And uh, so that they dragged me out of the wardrobe and I pretended I couldn't walk. So they asked me what was the matter with my leg. I said, Krava, cut me, Krava is cow in English, in, in the Russian I was kicked by a cow, I told them, so I couldn't walk. So they deposited me in the middle of the room while they were looking for more women. And, and there was my cousin and her friend, we were already there. And my mother was standing at the door, the officer was standing at the door, and uh, she kept on pawing at his face. She said, please don't take my little girl. She says, well, take me instead. Take. And he took her, mm. slammed her against the other side of the wall. 
and Rashi crumbled down on the floor, and that made me so mad. So I decided, you're not going to have me. I'm going to act so horrible that you, and so I did such horrible things. I let saliva drip out both sides of my mouth. I looked cross-eyed at them, and I started moaning like I was not all right in my head. I was pulling through my hair, and in front of my cousin, I pulled through her hair, and I just was moaning and groaning and making the awfulest faces, and, and like I said, even this disgusting let saliva drip out of my mouth. And when they got ready to go, I was sitting there on my knees. The officer took his boot, slammed it into my chest, so I fell backwards. And they didn't want me because I looked so bad mm. and mm. made such horrible noises. So anyway, and anyway, I got got saved that time. But then later on, we got more soldiers coming, and uh, well, it's a long story. But it was a horrible, horrible night. When I got through, I could not even. I mean, we we had nerves of steel at the time. We had such a good childhood. But when I got through the second time. Every bone in my body was aching. I couldn't put my teeth together. They were even every tooth in my bones was aching. I was so traumatized oh. in one night. Incredible. That's an incredible story. And uh, wow, I am anyway. s- delighted you have survived and are able to share that with us. It's a it's a tale of warning, also for sure. Yeah, I know. Uh, like I said, those, those were horrible times, and they they, they just somehow rather they were so brutal. Their behavior was so brutal. Uh, that we had to just hide all the time, you know. That's all they wanted to do is drink vodka and rape women. And, Horrible. Uh, now the Russian government now, they are finally acknowledging that, that so many rapes took place and so many children were born of these rapes. And they are, if they can prove uh, that they had a child of a rape, they are going to pay restitution now. This is a striking story and, and certainly poignant your your tale of survival, World War Two, and from the German side, a young lady caught up in the maelstrom of the war, really didn't know what was going on politically. The title is The Tears of War. Our author, Ingeborg E. Riles. Ingeborg, where can my listeners get copies of your book? Uh, from uh, Amazon.com. It's on Kindle and uh, Barnes and & Noble uh, and uh, Books a Million. Uh, you can get the book through to all of these uh, places. Thank you for taking the time not only to uh, reminisce about this difficult time in your life, but also sharing with us your story and uh, the the consequent tale of caution that is woven throughout your book. Again, uh-huh. thank you for joining me today. Oh, oh, thank you for calling. For iUniverse, this is J. Douglas Barker iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.